you're between the ages of four to the second grade, you're excused to kids' club. Just as another humorous announcement, somebody handed me a set of keys and said somebody left them in the women's restroom. If they're yours, we'd gladly donate them to the Grow the Vision campaign. (laughs) However, if that was an accident and you'd like them back, I'll gladly give them to you. So you can find me after the service. I'll be up here. I'm easy to find. Well, we are entering into the last of 14 weeks. We've been walking through John 13 through 17 in a series we've called The Table, Having Fellowship with Jesus. In this section, Jesus has walked with his disciples for three years. He's called them to himself, and they gather in an upper room in Jerusalem as Jesus prepares for the cross, and he spends a long meal with them, preparing them for the ministry he's going to leave them to. And he uses some final time to disciple them. And it's just reflecting over these last 14 weeks, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, showing them that he was the only way to purification. He taught them of a new commandment. Just as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. He wanted these guys to realize that love for others is rooted in him. That we love people as Christ would love them. Not out of our own flesh or out of what we think we might get, but love for them rooted in him. And he gave them right theology. He taught them that he was the way, the truth, and the life, and that there was no way to the Father except through him. And he taught them that they would not be alone, that the Holy Spirit would be with them always. In fact, he told them, you're better off if I go. You're better off with the Holy Spirit. And he calls this group of guys to live a life of abiding, being fully connected to him, in an intimate and personal way so that they can experience this fullness of life. And as Jesus has been discipling his disciples, in a way he's discipling us. As we've walked through this, we're taking the perspective that Jesus is discipling us and he's putting before them a full and accurate picture of the Christian life. And in doing so, he puts it before us. And though his teaching is over, we've noted this before, his discipleship isn't. And in chapter 17, he models prayer for his disciples. Two weeks ago, we looked at the first five verses, noting that when Jesus prayed, first he prayed for himself, and he prayed for just one thing, and it was significant. Jesus said, glorify your son, that the son might glorify you, the father, which basically in context boils down to God, do whatever you want to do to me, that you might receive glory. It's a tremendous prayer of discipleship. And last week, he interceded on behalf of the disciples. He prays for these 11. And he, again, prays for them for one thing. In verse 11, he says, keep them in your name. It's worth noting that he doesn't pray that they would avoid hardship. Jesus doesn't pray that they would avoid discomfort, struggle, or pain. Only that they would stay together. And having prayed for the unity, he commissions them to go out into the world. And we looked at this verse 18, as you've sent, them into the, as you've sent me into the world... So I've sent them into the world. And it's this commissioning that the Father has for the Son and so has for you. That Jesus tells his disciples, just as the Father sent me into the world, I'm sending you into the world. It's the same commissioning that Jesus gives his disciples that he gives you. It'd be easy for us to think at this point that Jesus is done. That he's finished praying. He's about to face the cross. He prayed for himself. He prayed for his disciples. But in fact, he's not finished praying. So we're going to finish this this morning in John 17, verses 20 through 26. 
And this is what he says in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, meaning his disciples. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Jesus doesn't just pray for his disciples. He actually prays for people who will believe through his disciples. Now think about that for a moment. When Jesus prays for these guys, it's not just for them, but people who will believe in him through their words. It's got to cause pause for, for a second because you actually have to see this in two ways. Very literally, it means you. Because somewhere in this text, you've got to appreciate the fact that somebody told you about Jesus. And somebody told them about Jesus. And somebody told them about Jesus. And somebody told them about Jesus. You know, on Friday I was reflecting over this and I couldn't help but recall a time as a freshman in high school when a man named Kim Talley came into my life. I get it, a man named Kim, it's strange. Wait for this, his wife was also named Kim. So that, that's weird. But Kim Talley came into my life through the ministry of Young Life and told me about Jesus. He loved me enough to tell me about Jesus. See, sometimes some of us grow up in the church, we spend so much time in the church, we assume that everybody finds out about Jesus from their mom and dad. We assume that everybody finds out about the Bible from their mom and dad. Therefore, everyone we look at, we assume their mom and dad rightly told them about Jesus. Guys, that's a bad assumption. People find out about Jesus Christ because people tell them about Jesus Christ. And in fact, this is the very thing that Jesus has in mind when he prays for his disciples. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. So literally, Jesus means this about you. And he means this about the people that you're going to tell about Jesus. You have to see both contexts. So in this particular passage, Jesus is not just praying for you specifically. And he is. But he has in mind that you're going to tell people about Jesus. Now let's, let's get real about this for a second. Let's step out on the carpet. Let me get in your grill. If the whole premise of this teaching series is that Jesus is teaching his disciples, and in so doing he's discipling us, when Jesus prays through this, prays for his disciples, and for those who will believe because of their words, he's actually anticipating that you, specifically you, not the plural you or southern y'all. You as individuals will be telling people about Jesus. Last week I listened to a podcast. I was listening to David Platt as he was talking about the Great Commission and the need to reach the world. And it was fascinating as he was walking through that, he was discussing the reality that there aren't unreached people groups in the United States. And of course that's kind of controversial if you study missiology. David Platt's assertion is, well, they're not unreached. They live by you. They have access to the gospel. Because they have access to the gospel, the responsibility on us lies on us to tell those people about the gospel. See, he's talking about the Great Commission, and gosh, we got to get to places where people have never heard of it. Because reality is that there are villages in a handful of countries all over the world where there's nobody that exists that tells people about Jesus. So we got to live that out. As a church, we got to live that out. we got to take that on. But we also got to live out that reality that you're the only person that knows everyone you know. Think about that for a second. Who profound. There are people in your life that you might be the only person 
who has an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus, who can articulate salvation to them. You might be the only person who could bear a testimony of Christ having taken you out of sin and redeemed you completely and set you up and called you his child. Friends, we're surrounded by so much hurt and hopelessness in this world, aren't we? We absolutely are. And we've got to appreciate that the answer, frankly, is not a better president. It's not better policies. It's not a better economy. Guys, our hope is Jesus Christ. That's all we've got. And if it's all I've got, it's all you've got, what do you think the world really needs? It needs Jesus. Badly. So Jesus prays with this expectation that we'll be talking about him a lot. He prays with this expectation that we'll be telling others about him. And in fact, in Romans 10, Paul says this. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now don't just take that as a statement from a pastor in a pulpit. Bring that home to your neighborhood. When you drive home today and you drive down your street, look at some of the houses around you. How are they going to hear unless it's from you? See, Jesus Christ in his divine nature puts you on your street. Now, some of you might live on a farm and have a neighbor a mile and a half away. Get on your tractor and drive to the brother. God gave you a tractor. It works. But we're surrounded by people and, and neighbors and co-workers and friends and people we engage all the time. It's an opportunity for us to tell people about Jesus. That's what Paul articulates. How will they hear without somebody preaching? Continues, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? How are they to preach unless they're sent? One of my favorite churches was a small Baptist church in Memphis. I got to do a couple of weddings there. I was never there for any other reason, but they had this great sign on the front of their church as you came in. It said, welcome to Eudora Baptist Church. On the way out, it said, welcome to the mission field. And there's a reality there. So if, if you wonder if you're sent to preach, the answer is, when we leave this morning, I'm formally sending you out to preach. To tell people the good news about Jesus Christ. All of you, every last one of you, formally sent to tell people about Jesus as it is written, Romans 10, 15. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus prays for these 11, but he also prays for people who would believe based on their word. It's true for us. And he continues in 21. I pray that they may be one. It's the same thing he prayed for the 11, prays for all of us. I pray that they may be one just as the Father, just as you, the Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is his request, that we might be one. Jesus prays for unity. And why is our unity important? Let's let the text be clear. So that the world may believe that you sent me. See, our unity is actually about him. 
we, we express ourselves as a unified body of Jesus Christ so that the world would have a chance to see him. We've articulated this a couple times during the summer. The reality of the church is that we ought to be a, a gathered corporate body of people who are really diverse about whom the world will look at us and say, how do those people get along? How do they relate? How do they like one another? And the answer ought to be Jesus. The only answer ought to be Jesus. People are going, man, that's the strangest group of people I've ever seen. Jesus. That's why the church in its nature has to be different. We've got to look different. We've got to have a diverse appearance because of Jesus. By the way, this is for a completely different sermon, but in the Bible, as Christians, there are two realities that we're called to live out that declare the unity of the, of the Godhead. The first we talk about here is the church. You know what the second one is? Marriage, given in Ephesians 5. Marriage, when lived in accordance to the teachings of the Lord, is supposed to illustrate the unity and the union of Christ and the church. It's one of a litany of reasons why a biblical perspective of marriage is crucially important, but we'll talk about that on a different day. Jesus continues in 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. No, that's a repeat. Jesus isn't a bad copy and paster like I was last week. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Jesus prays for these guys that they'd be unified. He prays for this unification. So let's dig into that a little bit. Let's see what that really looks like because it's unity, but it's not heretical. See, there's this worldly humanistic view of unity that the Bible is not calling us to. That starts to get heretical. I, I tried to make up the word herified, but it wasn't conjugating well. Couldn't make heretical a past tense verb. See, unity is not where we all get along. Unity is not where we all see eye to eye. Unity is not we all look the same, dress the same, act the same, buy the same kinds of things. See, this isn't unity at all. Unity isn't where we, everyone believes exactly the same thing. See, that's not unity. That's unity as the world would have us see it. Let's look at this for a second. What Jesus is calling us here, what he's literally praying for us for, is that we'd be united, we'd be unified in him. Jesus says, I and them and you and me. This is a unity he's calling us to. Literally, Jesus says, you, follow Jesus. Literally. By that, I mean literally following him, not just claiming his name and ignoring his words. I mean literally following Jesus, living out the indicatives. What Jesus says is true about you. Believe that. When he says, this is who you are, live that out. And to live out the, the imperatives as well. When there's a commandment that says, do this, try it. See, this is the unity that Jesus is pushing for. See, if you're pursuing Jesus in this literal way, and I'm pursuing Jesus in this literal way where I'm living in the indicatives and living out the imperatives, we actually get brought together as we both move closer to Jesus. And see, this is the unity he's talking about. 
That, that we would come together in Jesus. That it wouldn't be you and me meeting in the middle. It'd be you and me meeting at Jesus. So we'd understand who he is. See, that takes some of the presuppositional, big word, makes me look smart, takes some of the presuppositional work out of it. Because we don't have to sit around and discuss, well, well what about this, or what about this, what, 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 about how, what, what about how they think about this? No, we're meeting at Jesus. He's everything to us, and this kind of unity exists. And hear this, here's your, your talking point, your bullet point, your tweetable moment. Unity exists when we all think Jesus is more important. When we all think and we look around and we gather, this kind of unity exists in a church when we all say Jesus is more important. Well, I'd rather Ben not wear jeans. Jesus is more important. I'd rather we sing more of this song than that song. Jesus is more important. Do you see how it's not me versus you or you versus me? It's Jesus. It's not about us coming to this combined point where we all get in our vote and we try to land in the center point of everyone's vote where we line here. No, we actually all start moving closer and closer and closer to Jesus, digging into his word, believing that what he says about us is true. And when he says, do this, we're going to try. We're going to go for it. We're going to try to approximate our lives to be more and more and more like Jesus. And in doing so, we'll be unified. In doing so, we'll show unity to the world that doesn't make sense. Because we're going to give up some rights. We'll give up some privileges. We might even give up some preferences in the process. To say, you know what, I I might rather this or I might rather that. But you know what, I'm so glad to be a part of this. Because Jesus is more important. That's what his hope was as he prayed this through. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays, declaring to the Father that he desires you to be with him. Now process that for a moment. Jesus wants you to know that he desires you to be with him. Jesus has things he wants to show you. So that's not just about you getting to heaven so that you can get out your 12 questions to whomever you run into first. Picture this for just a moment that when you reach heaven and you stand before the Lord, you're standing there and Jesus is like, oh man, come on, there's so much I got to show you. This is awesome, you're here. See, this is the perspective Jesus takes on you. Now process that for a moment. Jesus is really excited about you. We found that in Ephesians 1 last semester. He's looking forward to inheriting you in eternity. He wants you. That's a totally different perspective, isn't it? Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, he's claiming you as his. These ones are mine. I desire that they may be with me where I am to see my glory. I think of Pierce, my six-year-old, when we have people over, immediately, he says, oh, come to my room. It doesn't matter how old you are. 
My children desperately want you to see their room. I don't know why. I don't invite people into my bedroom. It'd be weird to me, but my kids love it. And this is Jesus. I want them to be with me so I could show them my glory. I want them to see everything. Jesus literally says, I want to show them the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. I want to show you this pre-incarnate glory. Jesus is putting before them that having given up some things to become human, to walk with these guys for three years, they're going to have an understanding of me that's glorified, but I want to show them everything. I want to open up everything to them, and I want them to really, really, really get to see my glory. When we know Jesus, the unity, the community, and the fellowship with him is just getting started. You get to spend all eternity with him when you claim his name, and he's going to show you everything. He's going to show you his glory that he had before the foundation of the world. And if we believe that he was pre-incarnate for an eternity prior to being born, which we do, that's an awful lot of eternal glory to be shown to you and to me. He continues praying, O righteous Father, by the way, again, he's got a couple of fathers in here, so be careful about critiquing other people's prayers. Jesus did it too. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you. Again, great theology. We live in a place that decries if you call anything God, they know God. The Bible says if they don't know Jesus, they don't know God. They have no relationship to the Father. Good theology. Jesus, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I've made it known to them in your name. And I'll continue to make it known. Jesus again claiming you. Claiming that he's given you everything. And in fact, knowing him is everything. It's everything that the world doesn't know. And it's everything that you know because he's shown it to you. Jesus concludes this prayer. In fact, if we take it literally, we compile some verses together. We figure out he finishes praying here. They, praise, uh, they sing a hymn together, probably one of the halal hymns out of Psalm 113 to 118, and then departs for the Garden of the Gethsemane to prepare for the cross. But in doing so, Jesus prays. He prays for himself that he might glorify the Father. That God would let anything happen to him as long as the Father is glorified. He prays that his disciples, these 11, would stay together. That this unity that they would be find would be found as they pursue him and they'd be held together to reveal the Father. And he prays that these 11 would continue to spread the word of God. He prays that those who would hear it, which is absolutely us, because again, somebody told somebody who told somebody, probably like 1,400 other somebodies in there, by the way, who told me, who told you. He prays for these somebodies that as we come into Christ, as we believe in the name of Jesus, as we find our hope in Jesus, we're saved in his name, that we'd be brought together, we'd be unified, so that Jesus Christ would be the only important thing amongst us. So that together as a church, 
we would lift high the name of Jesus so that the world could look at us and see a demonstration of the Father. So that the only right explanation of the church would be that Jesus Christ did something significant 2,000 years ago that defines these people and that it doesn't make sense to these people. Because throughout this teaching, Jesus has put before these guys, the world does not know me. The world hates me. The world hates you. So he's pulling these guys together and loving on them, reminding them how loved they are by him and how they're owned by him and how he wants to show them and how he wants to show you. Over probably what's a three and a half hour meal, Jesus finishes discipling these guys. Walks across the Kidron Valley into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he faces the reality of the cross. Gets arrested, gets beaten, gets beaten to the point of death and is crucified on a Roman cross for my sin and for yours. Jesus prepares these guys knowing everything that would go before them, knowing that his death and his resurrection would define them the way it ought to define us. And so as Jesus has discipled these 11, in so doing, he's discipled us. We know his heart. We know his desire. We know what we've been commissioned to do. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. We know that other people will believe based on the testimony of our word. And so we go forth into the world, physically commissioned, physically sent out by the church to preach and to represent Jesus Christ everywhere we go. He prayed for you in that. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much that you've allowed your word to be kept and held together for us. Father, that as we look at your word, your truth, we claim it as our authority, as the very word of God. We find our hope in it. We find salvation in it. Thank you so much for the work of Jesus. Thank you for this time of discipling that he did as he didn't just pour his lives into these 11. He poured it into the lives of these 11 so it would be written down so it could be poured into our lives. Father, that we could know your heart, we could know your hope for us, and we'd know how, what you think about us. So Jesus, I pray that just as those 11 were incredibly faithful to what you put before them, that you would call us as a church to be incredibly faithful to what you've put before us, that we would claim the name of Jesus and that we would boldly proclaim that what your son did at the cross is the only sufficiency that we have to live by. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.